Welcome to another episode of Bowel Sounds, the Pediatric GI Podcast, NASPGAN's official podcast. My name is Peter Liu. And I'm Jen Lee. As we mentioned last month, we have had an incredible string of four former or current NASPGAN or future NASPGAN presidents. And lucky for Jose Garza, he's our first oh, non-president. Man, yes. So, Jen, why did we choose Dr. Jose Garza as our first non-president to interview? Well, I just like him. He's a great guy. Yeah, so. and he's a motility expert who specializes in fecal incontinence. Yes. And in pediatric GI, this is our bread and butter. You know, we see so many kids with constipation, fecal incontinence. As we talk about, there's really nothing that's as devastating to a child or an adult as having to go to the bathroom in your pants in school. Yeah. That's uh, pretty rough. All right, let's go. Let's go check it out. On to the episode. Dr. Garza, thank you so much for being with us today. We have a lot of people listening here who are fellows or residents that might be thinking about what type of specialty to go into. Uh, Seems like you love pediatric gastroenterology. There is uh, no other choice. Uh, I, I mean, if they <laughs> I are thinking about any, if they're thinking about times. anything else, then it's they'll be wrong. I mean, they're just going to throw it out there. It's, <laughs> it's correct. It's correct. It's a fact. I mean, I, I've said a lot of things that are lies. That, this one, this one is is correct. Uh, we asked Carlo Lorenzo this too. Why motility of all? I mean, obviously, I also love motility and yeah. stuff. But you know, why do why do you choose it? I decided I wanted to do pediatric gastroenterology when I was a first-year resident. So I was an intern, and I was doing a team that had a lot of hodgepodge, and one of them was GI. And my attending on that service was Jay Call, the King Call. Yes, the King was my attending at that point. And and no, it's it's destiny, isn't it? It's fate. It is destiny. It is destiny. And I admit a patient overnight. There was a teenager with dysphagia, food getting stuck. Mm-hmm. And there was a scope schedule the next day. And I was post-call. I finished all my rounds and everything. And my senior resident said, oh, you can just go down and watch the scope if you want. So I go down there. And I'm looking at it. And once it's in the stomach, Jay goes, do you want to try to the scope? I touched it. And the <laughs> ceiling floor, the ceiling opened up. And yes. there was this light <laughs> that... There's this music, angelical music, yep. who's to say, and I knew I wanted to do GI. And from there, I like pretty much started just following a J yeah. and following a J. And then the first time he showed me a tracing, my heart skipped a beat. Like literally <laughs> my heart, I just like, there's like, look at that tracing. That's amazing. And yeah. I got fascinated with the physiology of the tracings. Yeah. And even as a, as a resident, I was reading manometry and learning manometry and going to all the anorectals and the esophageals. At that point, there was the water-perfused ones uh, in fluoro and, you know, with the colonic manometry, the AD man- it was, and, and then from there, I was like, there's no – so by the time I started pediatric GI, like my fellowship, right. I knew I wanted to do neuro-GI. Like yeah. it was not – like it was just – you know, it, it's – why not motility? In pediatric GI, 70% of our patients – yeah. Exactly. Have a functional GI disorder. Right. Like, it, is, it is it. Maybe I should. I mean, I'm PGY9 right now. <laughs> if I do one yeah. more year, it'll be right. PGY10. I might as well just do motility. And this is this. like the best year by far. I mean, it's motility. Come on. All right. So today we're going to talk about one of the, I think if not the foremost, most important topics in pediatric gastroenterology, 
and it's why do kids poop their pants? Perhaps nothing more devastating to a child than pooping in their pants. And a parent. And a parent. Yeah, not a parent. So and, I don't know. And a gastroenterologist. Yeah, it can be very frustrating. And and I think the the saddest part of this is that people suffer in silence. They don't know that they can get help, and no one likes to talk about it. Right. Um, no one puts on ads. Hospitals don't put ads of kids. Oh, this kid was pooping their pants. Not anymore, right? It's a taboo right. subject. So got a lot of patients that um, suffer through this for years before they actually seek help. Right. So when a patient comes to you and they are having fecal incontinence, can you walk us through some of the things you ask them about? The nice thing about being in pediatrics and especially in pediatric GI is that most of our disorders are going to be benign. We're not, it's what I love about pediatric GI. We're not thinking about cancer, even though sometimes the patients are. So most of our constipation is going to be functional constipation, which means that it's not a organic inflammatory process that's causing this. And the best way to do this is ask questions to make sure we have no red flags that would point us that we need to do tests. But in 90% or more of our patients, tests are really not necessary. Just a good exam, history, done. I mean, a lot of times, as you know, they'll come to clinic with the chief complaint of diarrhea in stool accidents. And so, right, so the vast majority of kids probably have overflow and retentive fecal incontinence. But how do you try to differentiate whether it's retentive and constipation related or potentially non-retentive or maybe even behavioral? When you first see the patient, uh, I like to understand about chronicity. Usually, if you have fecal soiling, you probably had a history of hard, infrequent tools, um, withholding behavior when they were younger, um, refusal to go to the bathroom, um, some intermittent smears. Sometimes I ask if they ever clogged the toilet, and if that's in the room, he's usually really proud about it. And uh, they, <laughs> if that's the case and it happens and they just don't soil for the next day or so, or they do less afterwards and then he accumulates afterwards, it's just all pointing towards the outlet process that we have. And, and just that like we're talking, most of the fecal incontinence in pediatrics by far is exactly that. It's stool that's been accumulating in the rectum. It's getting hard. So the newer poop that's a little bit more loose and liquid just starts seeping around. And it's in the underwear. And the kid doesn't know. And and that's sometimes hard for the parents to believe. Um, I intermittently had had parents who had really punished their kids and uh, they was lazy and they were not wanting to go to the bathroom, but really just they don't feel when the accident is coming because it's not under control anymore. So you talked a lot about how this can be really difficult on the patient themselves. What kinds of things psychologically have you seen as an adverse event of them having this fecal soiling? And how can you work through that with your patient? The problem I do believe is sometimes kids get into this self-helplessness. Sorry, not self-helplessness. It's learned helplessness, where they've learned that no matter what they do and what they try, they're not going to be successful. And sometimes getting them to try what you're saying is the biggest challenge, telling them they really can actually do it. Because psychologically for a small child, it's just easier to not try and fail because you didn't try than keep trying and trying and failing. And that's very stressful again. So it is definitely important to just empower them and tell them that there is there is hope and there is importance to actually get them better. Yeah. Do you see a lot of bullying from school? 
definitely. There's a lot of kids that uh, have been bullied, a lot of kids that um, are actually homeschooled because of it, um, or even kids that don't function well. I had a patient that was a trouble student and had really bad grades, and the moment the fecal swelling went away, um, he actually was straight a student. So he was happened. He was just worried all the time that he was going to have an accident in front of his friends. And that was just enough to just have him not pay attention in school or do absolutely anything about it. Well, yeah. he's focused on not, you know, pooping his pants the whole time. So I can see that. In terms of explaining that concept of overflow fecal incontinence to families, are there any tools that you use? As you know, Naspigan has the poo and you video. Do you utilize that? I like the poo and you video, but uh, my attention span is very yeah. small. So it, it it is great. So I had one presentation that I did to parents, and I just edited it and, and put it in there. But I use my pen and the um, the nice white thin paper in the exam table to actually <laughs> do my drawings nice. and do my doodles about it because I think it's important for have them understand the concept. Right. I think parents come in looking for a diagnosis. And uh, sometimes if you re- don't really explain the why, they get very disappointed that they're leaving without a true yeah. answer, even though if they had answers. Right. So obviously, children vary in terms of how developmentally uh, advanced they are. and but, When they um, potty train. Yeah, when they potty train. Like, when do you start to feel like, okay, this is definitely not normal um, versus like, well, maybe you're just still a little young, you know? And still accents are maybe still okay. Well, I, I think it depends on the behaviors and on the other poop issues. Yeah. I think if you have somebody that's having really hard, painful, large stools, you're asking for trouble. Yeah. Uh, I think if if the kid's just immature, doesn't go to the bathroom, doesn't make it and rather play, but really he doesn't go weeks without pooping or doesn't go a lot of days without pooping, then you might wait a little bit. If it's bothering the kid, for sure, regardless of the age, we need to act. And uh, it's a vicious cycle because the interesting thing in my point of view is that it's a disease that the more you're not getting better, you're actually actively getting worse. Because the more the accumulation, the more the rectum gets stretched, the more hyposensitivity, the more hypercompliance, the more um, learned helplessness, uh, the more they withhold. So external anal sphincter is straighted muscle. So the more you exercise it, the stronger it gets. So it just more dysenergia later on. It just, it escalates and it becomes worse, or you have to go the other way and start making it better. So you mentioned earlier that this isn't a, this is a diagnosis that's primarily from history, physical, and a good exam. Uh, when would you consider doing additional evaluation? In general, I think that if there's no red flags, I like to treat them aggressively. And if they're compliant and you can't get them on a good regimen, that to me is a clear indication that we need to do some testing. And by a good regimen, I mean we really need to disimpact them to begin with. I think you cannot treat constipation without first cleaning them out, especially if you're having fecal soiling. Right. When you talk about treatment for constipation, um, we have our guidelines and that come cover basic constipation. But once the constipation starts becoming refractory or you start having fecal soiling, there's no really good evidence-based data that tells that my treatment is better than Peter's or better than yours or better than anybody else's. So I like to think, everyone likes to think that there's the best. So we all have biases in this process. My personal bias, and I'll tell you why and the reason for it, if you're having fecal soiling, I think you're going to achieve better success if you do stimulant laxatives. 
And there's my reason is if we talk that for you have chronic fecal incontinence, your rectum is already huge and big, and we empty you out completely, and then afterwards we give you a stool softener, the stool will be soft. But by the time it triggers the urge to defecate, because the rectum is so big, you're already behind the eight ball again. And they don't know when to sit. They get frustrated. If you do enough dose of a stimulant laxative, it'll give them a cramp. And that's a nice surrogate marker for them to say, I need to go to the bathroom. They sit, they're successful, and they start getting better. So my personal bias is if someone is having chronic fecal soiling, not one that happened intermittently, but a patient that's actually having fecal soiling and has been suffering this, then I think a clean out and beginning with stimulant laxatives and then slowly weaning him off uh, once you've achieved success for a couple of months, that's probably my initial uh, approach. As you know, but there's also a lot of controversy about people with concerns about stimulant laxatives, and there are many practices that solely rely on stool softeners. Um, for someone who has constipation and overflow fecal incontinence, I mean, do you start with a stimulant laxative alone? Do you typically start still, still with a stool softener first or a combination? What do you usually start with initially? So my practice is clean them out aggressively yeah. with a uh, polyethylene glycol, one to 1.5 grams per kilo um, per day for two, three to five days. And at the same time, every day you get a doclax suppository. Yeah. Uh, so we go from above and below. And that way you get a good clean. And after that, I do only stimulant laxative. Yeah. And then I got frustrated at the beginning because um, patients will come back after two months or whenever you see them back. And they were like, oh, it didn't work. And I was like, ah, we I just lost two months. Yeah. So I created my three rules. Yes. So all my patients go home with the three rules. And it's rule number one, you take your laxative every day at the same time. Mm-hmm. Rule number two, you sit before leaving your house in the morning, after dinner, and if your belly cramps. Mm-hmm. Why that? Because I want to just, no one likes to poop outside their house. And if a patient already doesn't want to poop, it's going to be less likely to not poop in the house. So we stimulate that. And rule number three is if things are not perfect or there's even a single accident, you call right away and we fix it right then and there. And with stimulant laxative, and this is, again, probably talking only about 70 to 80% of my patients require only stimulant laxative. Mm -hmm. In another kind of 10 to 15 then I need to add a stool softener because the dose of stimulant laxative and the poop is still uncomfortable. Yeah. And then a small percentage to large depends on the week. <laughs> Sometimes I need to add uh, fiber to bulk it up because the laxative that you need to push it out makes them they're very sensitive, so it makes them too loose. So we want to make just a happy amount of consistency, yeah. just perfect consistency, yeah. <laughs> the right recipe to do that. But it's, again, individualized and tailored. So, yeah. So it's really so it's medications, lifestyle changes, Education to the family. Education, medication, and behavioral changes. That's yeah. it. And understanding that this is not a quick fix. Right. And it's your rehabbing. I always tell the family, this is like learning a new skill. Mm-hmm. And no matter how well you are, good you are, if you go to the piano, you're not going to learn in a day. You need to, you need practice. So you need to keep on it until they practice and they get it right. I, I think, that. especially because like most of them have been struggling for months, if not years, years. right? So yeah. how can you reverse that? you know, in a day or two, right? So it's going to take some work. I think the biggest difficulty in differentiating sometimes and the one that gets sneaky because the symptoms can be the same is the non-retentive fecal soiling. Uh, and in this one, 
sometimes uh, laxatives make it worse because there is not an obstruction. When you have an obstruction, the solution is easy. You get the obstruction away, things get better. When you're having soiling despite not having an obstruction, it starts getting very hard. Uh, the easier test for me for that is the SITS markers. I stopped all laxatives, give the SITS markers, make sure they're not impacted. I personally, I don't know what you do. I make sure they're not impacted when right. I do the test. And I give them a pill and I take a picture. And if there's no markers and they're still having accidents, that's your easiest non-retentive fecal soiling test. Yeah. Uh, you can get fancy and do other stuff, but but that's there. And then depends on the age of the patient. I want to make sure, of course, we do a good perianal exam. And it's hard. I don't think we need to necessarily digitalize all these kids, especially not in the first visit, especially not with the young ones that are really afraid, but at least take a look at the anoderm, make sure the anal canal is well, you know, right there. There's no, you know, signs that we're having perianal Crohn's disease there make sure the spine looks okay <laughs> like there's a lot of things that at least taking one look and making sure you're not ruling out on that part gets worse so going back to treatment a little bit so um let's say we're getting to higher doses of a stimulant and we're having cramping and it's hard to tolerate what do you do next if, if medications um, are not doing the trick i want to make sure we're not still impacted or that we have a large load still um, this is where I would use an x-ray. Make it clear it's not to diagnose constipation. I already diagnosed it. <laughs> uh, I using to aid in the treatment. And there is clear data that you can't see and we can't agree. You know, if all three really nicely, we look at a picture, we're all going to see different things. But um, if I see rectal accumulation and distension, I think it's easy to know that this patient needs to be a further clean out. If the, there's no impaction, there's no large accumulation of rectus sigmoid, I'm still having fecal soiling. I've maximized my laxative because the kid's in horrible pain and they're still having fecal incontinence. And I know I am not um, in a non-retentive. I know it's a retentive patient. He'd had a rectal exam with it or I felt a fecal mass in the, then I've more and more started to use transanal irrigations in some patients. Yeah. And it's a good, quick fix. And sometimes cooling it off and having the kid pride of being clean for a month or two really makes a huge difference. Yeah. Um, so you said transanal irrigations. How would you differentiate that from uh, like rectal enemas or is it kind of similar or do you try one like more enemas and then something more ad aggressive if they're still struggling or what do you usually do? So with transanal irrigations, which I use is um, I give them a Foley mm -hmm. um, that they can put, you know, 22 French, 24 French, put in the rectum. I inflate the balloon and pull back, acts like a stopper. Mm -hmm. And then they sit on the toilet and we grab a kangaroo pump bag, the ones that are not pump um, but they're gravity ones and just put, um, saline first and flush them out. Mm -hmm. And, uh, it's very effective because you do it once a day and they get completely cleaned out. They're in the toilet. They're successful and they keep clean. And then if you are to that point where we are really not making any progress with oral medications, um, obviously as motility people, we love manometry testing. Yes, we do. When does that come into play? Like, when would you yeah. think about doing like an anorectal or colonic manometry? Yeah, so it's interesting. I don't know if this happens to you, but 
as a motility doctor, the I'm more strict with my patients' yeah. indications than I think other people are in it. And I think it's just the nature of the beast. Right. So if you think about it, uh, when we're talking about anorectal manometry, and the problem with anorectal manometry is that you need cooperation to get a good anorectal manometry. And if you have a child that is not going to work with you when they have a tube up their butt in front of, you know, a nurse, a doctor, you know, like the parent in there, then it's, it's a frustrating test for everybody. Yeah. Because if you don't have corporation, you might not get anything. Mm -hmm. And you might say, okay, we can do under sedation and then try to elicit a rare and rule out Hirschsprungs. But I guess it depends on the age. At a certain age, Hirschsprung's is such a rare diagnosis, and I think it's important to do it. You're more likely to not get a rare because of a mega rectum mm -hmm. than you are because you have a 10-year-old with missed Hirschsprung's, which sure. they are there. But right. but you're more likely, I mean, by just commonality. So then I, I think when I'm having trouble, I do anorectal manometry um, when the patient can... Uh, you know, be if, if the patient fights you with a visual rectal exam in clinic, that's probably not your patient for anorectal yeah, manometry. Definitely. So, um, you know, you're both in motility. I'm general gastroenterology, but a lot of our listeners may be pediatricians mm -hmm. or residents, maybe fellows who have not seen anorectal manometry. Can you walk us through what that looks like, what exactly the patient has to do? Yes. So the patient needs to have um, an empty rectum to do this. So the anorectal manometry really is to measure the pressures um, of the anorectum. And you have a catheter, which there's ones that you pump water through them, through a water pump, and according to the pressure, it changes into these little graphics. Or nowadays, it's more widespread use of what's called the solid state, where it's an actual transducer that measures pressure that's right there that's doing it. And, and then you do, you do usually a clean out. We, we usually tell to do a suppository, a physical suppository the day before and in the morning. And, uh, they come in, uh, they get changed, put in a, a nice robe there, try to keep them calm. Um, you kind of show them. I mean, depends how engaged the kid is and what the developmental stage of the kid is. Try to relax. They lay on their side and, uh, lubricate the catheter, put it in. The catheter has a balloon at the tip. And you begin the test and, you want to get a baseline pressure, but it's really hard at first because everyone's going to be anxious. So the baseline pressure is going to be really high. You can always go back to that one. And then you try to elicit the rectoanal inhibitory reflex, which is really uh, mediated by the myentary plexus, is, 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 is independent of the spinal cord. And what it tells you is that you have an intact neuromuscular um, rectum and anus. And, um, Really what this is, is that when poop goes into your rectum, it stretches it and it makes the internal sphincter relax. And the reason for this reflex really is sampling. So it, it, there's this wonderful thing called the dentate line. And it's what really tells you whether it's gas, liquid, or solid. <laughs> and it is very important for keeping friends' continents and understanding what you're going to do next after that information. So <laughs> it's really the rare that makes that sampling possible. Mm -hmm. So you inflate the balloon and you get it, and you want to get at least, I like to get at least three that I know they're good. Um, you can keep going more. You want to increase the, size, the sizes of the inflation um, because that way you want to see that there's a dose response. You can see some um, spinal cord abnormalities if the rare is abnormal, even though it's not caused by there. The spinal does 
regulated. So it gets very irregular. And once we do that, then we have them cuff. So we want to see nice contraction of the sphincter when we cough. That's important again. You don't want to have incontinence when you're coughing or laughing. And then we ask them to squeeze, which in pediatrics is is what they do best. (laughs) Unless they had surgery or anything, that's usually where they know they can succeed. And then we ask them to defecate. And here's the problem with this one is that we overcall dysynergia and anorectal menology. Dysynergia means that you're pushing and you're closing the door. You're pretty much squeezing your anus as you're trying to push. And the problem is the rectum's empty. They're laying on their side and you have four strangers cheering you. That's usually not how you poop. Not for everybody. No. But, uh, yeah. I don't know. Speak for yourself. <laughs> exactly. Yes. I don't want to realize that hey, we all like different things. <laughs> but, and that's the process. And then afterwards we do sensation. And we elicit three sensations, like when do you feel it first? And the next one is, when would you say, huh, I think I should head to the bathroom right now? And the other one, which is the discomfort, it's like, okay, you would just poop regardless of how disgusting the bathroom is. So you want to get those three measurements and then that's it. I don't know if you... We also do balloon expulsion, at least we try to. And so kind of similar, but we're trying to like mimic a bit more physiologically what it'd be like to try to pass something. So they have a rectal balloon, they sit on a bedside commode upright, and then they try to expel it. And um, it's just another way of looking at whether or not their ability to generate the abdominal pressure and relaxation of the pelvic floor that you need to pass stool. So I feel like, because I agree, I think pelvic floor is an urge, especially if it's just based on the push, is definitely overcalled. This yes. is such a weird situation to be doing that. And so we try to take that into account. I mean, we ask them to do at least two attempts. But then also the balloon explosion, I think, is helpful. You know, if they can't push out, you know, 10, 20, 30 mLs in a balloon, um, there's probably some there's probably some difficulty relaxing the pelvic floor there. But, yeah, I think there's a lot of debate about exactly what, how exactly to diagnose that in a child uh, compared to an adult where maybe it's a little more clear that they know what's going on and what they're trying to do. I think what a lot of parents or what a lot of pediatricians may not realize is that your children are awake. When they're doing this yes. and they have to cooperate mm-hmm. and um, especially if you're at a center that maybe doesn't do anorectomanometry and they may be trying to refer patients for these studies what age range do you typically recommend before you start thinking about doing these tests so i want them at least six-year-olds um with the caveat that i've had five-year-olds do better than 16-year-olds mm-hmm. I mean, right? But if if you cannot do a rectal exam in the office, that's not a kid that you can do an erectile manometry. Right. That's a good that's a good thing there. And then I've tried some infants now with the solid state. You know, the infant and the erectile manometry is a little bit more funky in there. You have to be a bit more careful. I think when he was water perfused, it was really easy to get a pseudo relaxation. And what I mean by this is anybody that's grabbed a catheter and inflated the balloon, you feel a pull towards the inside. Every time you inflate the balloon, you feel that pull. And with the water perfused, the, the, the hole was so little that it was so easy to then move north past the sphincter and you get what's called a pseudo relaxation. So it was very easy to say, oh, you don't have Hirschsprung. Mm-hmm. So with the solid state, it's a lot 
better in that sense. You can get to see movement. And I think if I'm very confident I see nice dose response and stuff, then I know I don't have to subject this patient to something else. So I, I, I use it a little bit in young kids. Um, and those, I usually have them hungry and they can feed while they're doing the anorectomonometry and they do pretty good. But it, the magic start, the, the, the closer you get to 12 months, the, the less likely they're going to be there. Because what happens is the external on the sphincter is right around it. So if you squeeze, you can't see anything. All you see is squeezing. So you can't see relaxation because you're squeezing. And then afterwards, I usually do six to seven. How about you? I'd say it's about that same age too. But it's true. Like the kind of prognostic factors would be how well they tolerate a rectal exam. If they already do enemas fairly regularly, I try to tell the family like, oh, yeah, this is going to be easier than that. Um, we have, we actually are doing some studies looking at distraction, looking at hypnosis before anorectomonometry. So there's ways. I think, uh, I really think also kind of the people who are doing it, like you mentioned, if you do a lot, like the nurses that, that do it for us and I'm sure for you too, you know, they're so comfortable with it that they can comfort the family and explain it well to the child and reassure them while it's happening. And so, um, I think there's a lot of factors that go into it. But yeah, I, I agree. I think, uh, for the toddler, to young child, it can be very challenging. Yeah. And uh, that's probably getting yeah. too much into the You're Too much into the Yeah, yeah um, it's time for it to wake up all the people who are not <laughs> interested in what's going Yes. Back to stool Back to, yes, back to stool accents. <laughs> this is what happens when uh, you get too motility people talking about monometry. Yes. <laughs> I mean, I was falling asleep. I know, <laughs> I know. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I'm you got a horn to wake people up. That's uh, fine. <laughs> all right. Back to stool accidents. <laughs> yes. What about, okay, so <laughs> actually back to still accident. So what about, so we talked about how, okay, so monometry can help you better understand like what exactly is going on there. Um, I guess one more question before we move on from monometry, uh, anorectal monometry. So what do you do? Like, can you give the listeners some examples of what, how you would use those results? Like, uh, is it solely, like you mentioned, like clearly it's to, it can help exclude other organic causes, but for someone with like functional constipation who has overflow fecal incontinence, how could you use the results to help improve their constipation and stool accidents? So I think um, the numbers that we talked about, sensation, are very telling to me. Mm -hmm. If they feel it at 20 ml, so pretty average, especially good for someone that's constipated, but they don't get an urge until 150. Yeah. That's a big behavioral process where you're like, you yep. should... Get yourself to the bathroom before because you can clearly fill this, mm -hmm. which is very different from the child, which you are at 300 and they're not batting an eye. Mm -hmm. I mean, at 100, an adult is asking for forgiveness. Imagine at 300 on a child. And when they're not batting an eye and you have to check that the balloon is actually tied mm -hmm. and working well, you know that that patient will – I mean, that's a patient that starting um, – osmotic laxative is going to be a failure because because right. there's no way you're going to feel anything. They're just going to store it in there. Mm -hmm. So that can help you guide a little bit on the management and that process around yeah. there. I mean, those sensation thresholds there. Um, even though we bashed on dysenergia, uh, the kind of going around playing devil's advocate, there are some clear, true, like you're like, okay, this, it's an overcall. Okay, this one's definitely not an overcall. Right, I mean, right. they're clearly having huge pressures when they're trying and they're not increasing the intra-abdominal pressure. So there are things you can actually work with them and kind of teach them a little stuff in there. So that also yeah. works in there about talking a little bit about biofeedback and 
uh, talking about sensation, what medications you want to choose. Yeah. I mean, I think what I'm hearing here overall is it's really back to the history, getting to know your patients, tailoring the approach to your patient, and kind of coming up with a custom plan yep. for the patient that's sitting in Personalized front of you. Medicine, Personalized medicine. Personalized yeah. medicine at its best. That is true. It all coming from fecal soiling. How about that? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And right. And I think like you're saying, you know, even the anorthonometry, it's just a tool, right? Oh, yeah. Even for that test, so much of it is how they respond to the test. In the end, it's like about that patient and their history. I think that you can do really great things for these patients. I mean, mm-hmm. you said a lot of them are really not going to school, not able to live their day-to-day life. And then it sounds like with some of these treatments you're bringing, you're able to make a big impact in their quality of life on a daily Mm -hmm. basis. And that's huge. Yeah. No, it is great. I enjoy it. It's very satisfying when you treat a patient with fecal soiling. You, You see them in clinic the first day. They're not making eye contact. They barely talk. And then you see them afterwards when they've been clean for a couple of months and they're like, you know, like peacocking, yeah, almost like yeah. going in there, like they're just, their personality's back. They're just, I mean, it, it is, it's important. I mean, think about it. Our society's not one that will allow to have just fecal soiling. And some adults might be understanding, but when you're within kids at school, it's impossible, impossible. Any final words for our listeners um, related to or unrelated to pooping in your pants? <laughs> I... um I think as it pooping in pants, I think it's important to know that there is a way out. And if the patient's having trouble, there are resources available. And it's something that, you know, I don't think any kid should, no kid should poop their pants, yeah, period. Right. We, we can help that. Yeah. I want to thank you for being, for inviting me, for being here. This is your house, but thank you for inviting me. <laughs> and uh, you're podcast has officially hit rock bottom so congratulations no. on that one. Oh, but you know what you are the first non-naspigan president that we are interviewing. that's exactly my point oh, like when no, you no, look no, no. when you look at the people who are being interviewed like <laughs> like i just dropped the bar like the bar so, you can, you can no, i don't think no. yeah you the next person will pick it up it's great <laughs> we were like who all these presidents Carlos, jose Karen, definitely the, yeah. no i mean all this you know, kind of GI royalty, and then me. No, no, no. <laughs> we are very happy to have you here. It was fun. Wow, that was an incredible episode, right? <laughs> yes, it was really great. It was great. Yeah, a high bar was set for Dr. Garza, and uh, he just knocked it out of the park. If you liked what you hear and you want to support the show, you can donate to the Naspigan Foundation. You can also uh, follow us on social media. So that's at Balasounds on Twitter and Instagram and at Pediatric GI Podcast on Facebook because they are biased against bowel sounds or the word bowels. And as always, the discussion, views, and recommendations in this podcast are the sole responsibility of the host and guest and are subject to change over time with advances in the field.